Hold up. You might think you're winning, but that's some fake money. Oh, I'm tired of giving you money. You might think selling your stuff for a billion dollars is the win. No, they created that money. They printed that money so they could steal your stuff. It's happened uh-huh. over and over again. People don't realize like you're they they're overpaying for your assets because it's fake money. The money is money's not real. What's real is the things that we can touch and we can feel. Mm-hmm. I never thought I'd see the day where Wall Street itself had become a proponent of expecting welfare from the system. These are always classic. Tweet talk. That's all, folks. Episode 69. This podcast is brought to you in part by investatheteam.com. We have created the official merch of Generational Wealth. You have to shift your mindset from employee to you can't fire me the boss. Always remember, no sacrifice, no reward. Hood Estates, exclusive collection available at investatheteam.com. Now back to the world's greatest podcast. Are we on the end, Tweet dope what it sounds like to be the best. This is a Black Wealth Podcast. Yes. Build wealth, invest, own, and close the wealth gap. It's time to break down these financial concepts with your host, Mr. Todd Millionaire himself, Charles Oglesby, and Raphael Husband. It's lit. I don't and even know who episode... Oh, episode Steve McNair. RP. Oh, okay. Didn't he pass away? He like he like committed suicide or something? It was something like that, yeah. Really? <clears throat> yeah, episode Steve McNair, number nine. OG was, black quarterback. Uh, he played for the Ravens for a few years. Okay, Baltimore, repping Baltimore all the way. All the way. It's Baltimore in my blood. Forever. So it's this is Tweet Talk, the Blackwell Podcast with your usual hosts, Raphael and Charles. Lit. Lit. And today we have a special guest, the first two time guest on the podcast. Two times. He's been here already? It's been three yes. times. This is the third time, bro. Oh, I didn't know. Really? <laughs> no, you, like, no, you were on you on you on the other podcast once. Oh, was it? Yeah, you on the other uh, that was the good one. The the mystery. The mystery episode, they call it. Oh, yeah. you're right. You're right. He's you're never right, been right. on Tweet Talks. Yes. No, I have, John. I've been on here once before. Right? He definitely right. has. He definitely was right. one of the earlier guests. All right. For shizzle. But, and I remember because Raphael brought up some tweets I wish he hadn't, and I was like, Ugh. Uh, <laughs> He has a habit of doing that. You know, so our special guest tonight, like I said, two-time guest, is Jamal Vitos, former... President of the Todd Capital Investment Club, Stock Investment Club. Tell the people who you are, Jamal, a little bit about yourself. I am a financial analyst located in Baltimore City. I work for a firm, uh, a wealth management firm. I got to make sure I I don't violate any uh, company policies. Um, I've been in financial literacy really like 12 years now uh, in regards to just educating the community, you know, investing, really learning the craft and everything like that. Um, and as far as group economics, that I kind of got brought into that by Charles about three. No, it has to be like almost five years ago now, Charles. Like since we, me and him have linked up on uh, 
social media and done some various things together. And I'm just all about the culture, man, the culture being built financially, uh, socially, economically, all the way around. Tell us, like, what are you talking about? Like, what what did you link up with Charles to do? Let's talk about the, the, the whole investment. It, it was funny because, honestly, I don't know if Charles remembers. I don't. I don't know how we actually started following one another. Um, but I was always tweeting about financial literacy and Charles was always tweeting about financial literacy and also adding some legal aspect at the time. I think he might've either been still in law school or was just getting out of law school. And the more that we tweeted it, the more we linked up. And one day, I think someone said something to Charles about starting an investment club and Charles tweeted as he often does when someone says something to him. And I was like, you should do it, bro. And Charles has this habit of when you tell him to do something, he always like volunteers you to do something like, you know, puts you in a position. I was like, I don't know. That's not really my thing. You know, I don't know how that would work. I'm not sure how the dynamics of it would work and all that. And Charles doing what he does was really just like, no, we just want to do it. He started making up I think it was like a sheet where he was like, who wants to be an investment club? And it just popped up. And from there, I got involved with just a member. I was just giving him, giving him my money, the monthly. I think initially it was like something small. Charles, it might've been what, $20, $30 a month. The, the first initial monthly um, contributions, was it? 25 Yeah, it might've been 25 yeah, it was- And I was doing that. <clears throat> 25. I think Raphael is an OG investment club member as well. Yeah, I, I, I jumped in there about maybe a little over a year ago or something. Yeah, so we did that. And I was just doing, you know, I was just giving my monthly contribution, but still tweeting, you know, on Twitter. And doing the monthly calls one time, I think one time before a call happened one month, Charles texted me. He was like, I'm going to let you know that during this call, I'm going to volunteer you to do the market analysis for the stocks that people do, because I really don't have the time and I need someone to do it. And I was kind of, it was some uh, some resistance for me towards Charles. I was like, I don't know, Chuck, because like I've been investing for at that point, maybe 10 years on my own. No, it's like eight or nine at that point on my own and risking my own money is one thing. But now you're asking me to risk complete strangers. <laughs> and, and my method, my, my philosophy might be cool for me. I know what I'm risking. But now, right. you know, at that point, it might have only been about 50 of us. But, of course, the group grew until it was like at maybe two, three hundred of us at a time. And Charles is one of those people he wouldn't take. No, he was like, no, you're going to do it. You'll figure it out. Just do that shit, man. That's always his thing. Do that shit. Mm. So. And the funny thing about that is once he did that, I kind of, in a weird panic, it kind of turned the switch on for me to get even better. Of course, I had studied finance in college. Again, I had been investing. I had made some money. I had lost some money. I had kind of, you know, I had been up at that point. But that was just me. It was like, now I'm about to manage other people's money. My shit has to be tighter. Like, I need all of my ducks in a row. If I know the P&L really good. I need to know it excellent. When they when they throw out numbers at me, I need to be able to re- you know, run off that formula without having to really think about it. And it 
turned into a thing is the more I took on or the more I, the longer I did it, the more Charles threw, <laughs> threw something at me and went from the market analysis to the blog until eventually he was like, okay, I need you to take over the stock side because the real estate side and the stock side is becoming too much to, for one person to manage. Right, right, right. Yeah, I came in, um, I came in later. So I was just a contributor. And I was part of the club that got shut down in Vallejo. So, oh. Yeah. I think that was a technical problem. Though. I think we couldn't trade the way we wanted to trade in that specific platform. Mm. Yeah, because I was never part of the OG club that was on, like, Vivio. No, Vivio was the original one that Charles found that it gave us, like, I think it was the K-10s. It was the one that let us know. um, I remember Vivio. That was, like, that was kind of my favorite because it lets you know how your percentage broke down. It's, like, how much you had invested, what was your percentage of the overall portfolio, Mm -hmm. everything like that. That was definitely the one that I love. I think they've kind of converted to back to that with the existing OG stock club. But eventually, I think it was like two years in, maybe two and a half, I got a job at the current firm that I'm at and certain restrictions required me to step back. But before, um, before I left, I think Charles got a vote who wanted of people who wanted to take profits for the initial, you know, two years at that point that we, had been invested in the stocks and the positions we had acquired. And I never forget when Charles texted me one time, he was like, do you realize we've made people 47% return on equity? And I think it was like 19 months. He was like, hedge funds don't even do this. Hedge <laughs> funds can't get that return to people on. And for us, that was big because I think we had acquired 50,000. Charles, check my numbers, but I think we had acquired 50,000 in capital and 49% return on that was, what, $23,000 or something like that? And that was just what it is. And, it, and so I've been away for a while. And the other, I think it was like a month ago, Charles tagged me in a post. I think I woke up and he had tagged me in a post saying the OG investment club accounts up 36%. And I right. just randomly asked him, I said, is that the old positions that we had? Or, you know, had we changed it or anything like that? He said, that's the stuff that you and I put in there years ago. And it just made me think that people always talk about investing sometimes not accumulating fast enough, like the the buy and hold or the long-term investing. Like literally I had forgot about that stock club, like portfolio, the money that was still in there. And without doing nothing, I think Charles had made that post. He said, without doing anything, the stock, the portfolio had returned 36%. That's the power of investing. I think sometimes people don't really, they don't really hone in on. If you throw money at a position and just kind of let it sit, I'm talking about good quality companies, something that you would, was Warren Buffett always likes to say, something that you don't mind holding for a very, 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 very long time, the money kind of makes itself. Right. It's funny because um, I had kind of slacked slacked off with the put in my contribution because I, I didn't have it on automatic mm-hmm. so then i got start then i started doing the blog with charles and i kind of got busy and like kind of slacked off and then when they shut down vallejo and sent us our money back and i looked at it i was like damn i made 64 percent of my money but i didn't put that much in so i was like damn 
And, and, and that's the experience. Like, like you were literally shocked about how the money you had forgotten about had grown. Right. 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 I did, I had not paid attention in a little while. I was like, damn, 64 percent. And that's the and that's the power of like, you know, just letting money work for you when you don't really have to do anything. They, that money that you invested in and had forgotten about it, clearly you didn't need it because you had forgotten about it. And not yeah. saying money isn't valuable or people are just frivolous with it. But if you're deliberate with, you know, having your money multiply for you, that's the result. And I always say that buy and hold a long-term investing is one of the financial vehicles I want people to use. I'm not saying that you don't use other financial vehicles, whether it be ETFs, mutual funds, uh, options, bonds, anything like that, but use them all as an encompasses of everything trying to accumulate wealth as opposed to just using one thing and just focusing on that when there's a whole broad variety of financial vehicles you should be using in this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's good to have that forget it money, that money that you've forgotten. That was good. So what's you going to do a, a stock talk tonight, Charles? Well, I kind of want to touch on the investment club and the principles to take from that. I was riding on the scooter up here and I was just thinking about how everything that we own is maturing. Uh, most recently, the vending machines, the vending machines are maturing. So the debts mostly paid off. Um, and now we hired our first employee. And so it's kicking. But I had so many people that tried to rush the process. They're just like, hey, man, we need this. Hey, man, we need that. Hey, man, we need this. Mm-hmm. And when they don't get it, they assume that something's not right. And they assume like they're not getting their fair share. Somebody's trying to take advantage of them. And they don't like a lot of people don't realize like, no, this is just business. I was watching. I was watching. Um, there's this this critic of the total real estate fund. His name is like Frederick something. And Frederick is very outspoken. He knows finance. He understands the space. And he was breaking down the dividend. And he was saying, yeah, Tulsa real estate fund. Yeah, they're supposed to pay this dividend out. But in order for them to pay the dividend, they have to make this much in profit. They have to make like a million dollars in profit. And he was like, well, I don't think they can do that. And so I thought it was interesting how you had somebody who understands business, obviously, who's saying like, no, you don't just pay a dividend. <laughs> you achieve a profit and then you pay the dividend. And so it's like you have two people that are arguing anti-Tulsa real estate fund, but for different reasons. One saying, oh, I want my dividend. And one saying, yeah, it's kind of unrealistic to pay a dividend right now. And so I bring all that up because a lot of people in the investment club, when they're investing and they're looking at it on a day-to-day and they're just like, where's my money? And then you look up like after you forgot about it, and the, the original investment club did 36% on top of the 47% we already made. It's the same money. So it's actually like a 75% ROI. Mm-hmm. So we took, it's actually like an 80% ROI. 36 plus 47 is like 83%. And so, you're right. am I wrong? No, yeah. you're right. Mm-hmm. 83%. And so we put this money in there, but then I have people. The reason why I looked is because somebody's like, what happened to the investment club? Where's that money? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, Let me pull this up and see what's going on. And then I looked and I saw that. So we invested 50 grand, made 47%. Took the 47% off the table, invested that 50 grand again, made 36%. But 
you don't get there checking it every day, being pressed over it every day. You let it mature. Investing is about letting things mature. And we lose because we don't let it mature. We want to strike it down when it's young, impatience, all that stuff. And so I would just say that there's so many lessons to take from what we did. Um, Another lesson is just being thrown into experience and then growing into that experience and then growing past that experience. Um, I think that anybody who's worked with me has has experienced that. And one thing that uh, Jamal said that I've experienced is like when you get put in position to manage other people's money, you step it up. You read the books, you listen to the podcast, you watch the interviews, you read the articles, and you get there. And so sometimes by avoiding responsibility, we avoid our greatness. We avoid what we can be because who we can be is a lot greater than what we think we can be just based on who we are now. So I think that the the biggest thing we got from that is taking action. We took action and great things happened despite our fear, despite our worry, because I mean... Quite honestly, I was scared. I'm like, man, I got people sending me money from all across the country. I got to make sure I I document all this stuff right. I got to make sure I cross my T's and dot my I's. I got to make sure I get you the contracts. I got to make sure there's transparency. I got to make sure I'm communicating, doing all these different things. And so I've grown. I was thinking about this today. There is no Thai Capital Options Community without the Thai Capital Investment Club. And so everybody who's out here like, I'm going to just copy what Charles is doing. Like, no, you got to copy the old shit. Before you get to the current shit, copy the you old just, shit. Yeah, you can't just hop to where I'm at now. You got to follow the process. That's why people have circled back and they've apologized. They they might have fired on me three months ago and they circle back like, man, I hope we could be cool, Charles. I guess we could be cool. <laughs> but now, the kind of what you what you're saying is so dope, and I want to talk about a couple of things. Is your first saying that the positions you put me in, like you're right, I was terrified. It was like. Yeah, I could do it. I had run a business that, you know, my first venture that had failed and everything. And again, that was cool because that was me. That was my money. That was my reputation. That was my thing. But those situations that you put me in, one, helped me manage people better because I know Charles used to tell me, like, these emails are getting crazy. It wasn't until he made me president. I was like, yo, these emails are crazy. Like, these people are out of hand. And I had to learn how to respond to them in an effective way. But also, after I got out of that and I started kind of doing my own um, consulting on the side, the skills that I had that I wouldn't have had if Charles not put me in them situations had matured so much. Like the way I can, how I analyze a market now is so much more crisp. I'm calling like pullbacks and reactions that three years ago I would have reacted to later before, after it happened, as opposed to seeing things that would have happened. But in addition to that, what you said about the dividend and people not understanding is very important. Most people don't realize that these blue chip stocks that you get dividends from, those are voluntary actions. They can decide at any time, as we've seen this year, to freeze it, to cut it, to not pay it out at all if it is not financially feasible in reference to what you said, the Tulsa real estate fund. If it's not financially feasible, I'm not going to give you this money. We haven't made it. It's not going to work. So I think people have to, when they're coming into a situation like this in a group economics where everyone may not have the knowledge, they have to take the ego out of it. Stop stop putting in what you assume how it's supposed to operate and let someone pour into you. And it's funny that you talk about the options group because I'm in there a lot. Just 
listening to them, getting a vibe, seeing how they, you know, listen. And I was in the voice chat today and how they feed off of each other and, and, and relay information. And when new people jump in, it's very dope. Like it's very much how it's supposed to be. When someone new jumps in and asks them a question, the person isn't arrogant to get it because they don't know. They don't know the information that they're trying to get. They're trying to crawl, but they really don't know how. So that's how it's supposed to work where it's when you start something that's never been done and, and very much the way you and I did it, neither one of us had had the experience or came from backgrounds where this had been done before. You're in California, I'm in Maryland, and we worked well together 3,000 miles away, but we didn't know if that was going to work, but we tried it anyway. Um, one thing before I go get parachutes downstairs is I would say that the way I actually met Jamal is he was starting a company and he just like sent me some of his product. And that's a big part of the reason why we kind of grew that kind of like friendship slash relationship is he led with the give. And whenever you lead with the give, for the most part, the ROI you get back when that give is going to be much larger than the gift. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is that anybody who has worked with me, I'm always pushing people out there. So I mean, the same thing can be said by Hunter, can be said by Shauna, can be said by Kia Khalil, can be said by all these different people. And I try, I be trying to push Raphael. He's too stubborn, man. Raphael be stubborn. <laughs> he won't listen. If he, he could be doing so much shit. I'd be like, Raphael, we need to get this done. But I'll say all this to say that there's bigger things on the horizon. So whatever you're doing right now pales in comparison to what you could be doing on the other side of this experience. And then not only that, that's what makes black business great. Because if you walk into a lot of people, the reason why they only see their limitations as opposed to what they can grow into is because that's what white society tells you. They tell you these are your limitations. They're not telling you what you could potentially become. They're saying, oh, well, you don't know this or you're not that. So therefore, that's exit. It's, that's exist. It's a fixed mindset. They're placing a fixed mindset on you and they're telling you, you can never get to this level, little Negro boy. But I'm telling you. It's possible in part because I've done it myself. And then also part because I want to see you win. They don't really want to see us win. They might not want to see us not win, but they're not in here trying to do whatever they can to push us to the top. Maybe in certain instances they might do, but I guarantee you, if you've ever worked for African-American boss, they're pushing you. They're putting you in places to succeed. They're putting you in places that you might not have ever been, giving you experiences, telling you that you can um, do whatever you think you can't do. And that's so important. And that's why the business is more important than just one person making money. The dude out there running the vending machine route, every time he goes to a stop, he's getting experience. He wants his own vending machine route. I told him, we'll get to that point. It's, it's about the bigger picture, not just that individual task. So let's get to the market, market uh, conversation really quick. And I know Jamal can chime in on this. But one thing that I would say is it was a good day until it wasn't. And uh, I was killing it for a long time. I was up like 17 and I was very happy with myself. Um, when I, when I get up that, I'd be like, why work? Why am I even here anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we made 17 grand in a day. We out. And, and, then? Uh, and then I guess Donald Trump tweeted that uh, they're ending stimulus talks until after the election. And so I was having some thoughts about this as I was walking into the office and I was like, on one hand, I don't like trade. I don't like investing on news. 
Like, it doesn't matter. Stimulus, no stimulus. That's short-term thinking. I'm here and I bought stocks based on where they're going to be six months from now. And so what's going to happen is it's going to go up, it's going to go down, and they're going to say, oh, it's up because there's stimulus talks. Oh, it's down because stimulus talks broke down. Oh, it's up because of this, it's down because of that. I'm not really concerned with that. I'm concerned with the general fundamentals of these companies that I'm buying. And that's why I go see them in person. I always tell people that don't just look at the chart. Don't just look at the news. Go and see these businesses in person because it's one thing for somebody to tell you malls are dead. It's another to walk in and see a line in person. It's one thing for people to tell you that these restaurants are going out of business. It's another to see you go to a restaurant. It's a three-hour wait. It's one thing to say that um, Vegas isn't coming back and these casinos are dead. It's another to see that people are still going to Vegas and turning up and living their best life. And so a part of your due diligence isn't just charting it and looking at the trends and all that cool stuff, MACD, RSI. You got to go see these businesses in person. It's a real business. It's not numbers on a page. And so that's why I'm holding true to my investments, despite what's going to happen as it goes up, despite what's going to happen when people tweet stuff. I'm not I don't care about your tweets, man. All I care about is are these companies good companies, period. And am I getting at a discount? I just opened up a brokerage account for my son because I've been putting money into his savings. And I was like, this is very irresponsible of me to just have his money sitting here in savings. And so what we did is we were keeping 10 in savings for him. And then every single dollar that comes in is invested. So I moved 19 over, 19's in a TD account form, and then he gets paid in another three weeks. So I'll put that in his TD account. And I was looking at stocks and I was looking at McDonald's. I was looking at Netflix. I was looking at uh, Disney. I was looking at all these companies and these great companies aren't giving me a discount. And I was like, son, you got to learn how to be a value investor today. And so we just went <laughs> and we bought him some AMC. AMC got killed. I bought him, I put him in some AMC. I'm, a, I'm about to put him into some cruise lines. I'm going to put him into all that stuff. Because we're investing, we're not speculating. Speculating was when you take the approach that I went from, I want a high to go higher. That's speculation. We're investing. I want the low to go back to where it fell from. And so that's what we're teaching my son. And that is my take. What do you see today, uh, uh, Jamal? Hey, first of all, how old is he? How old is he, son? He's six months. I just want, I just want the listeners to hear that. <laughs> I'm not playing. You're going to learn today, son. You're going to learn today. He, he was watching CNBC. He was doing all that stuff. He's in swimming lessons already. We're about to get him into definitely going to be playing the piano, playing hey, tennis. Charles. Yep. Nobody told you that people don't swim? Well, that's the reason why he's <laughs> in it. Because I don't even, even want to hear that excuse. I don't even know how that's an excuse. Jamal, can I don't you know swim? how that became a thing. Can you swim, right. Jamal? Yes, I can swim. Can you swim, Raphael? Yeah, I can. I mean, I yeah, yeah. I grew up that's in the Caribbean. So. Okay, that's dope. Grew up next to the right near the beach. But Across what I saw in the market beach. today was it's a long fold. I, I want to say that I never thought I'd see the day where Wall Street itself had become a proponent of expecting welfare from the system. And by that, mm. I mean, it takes me back to the banks being bailed out in 2007, where they had to be bailed out because they had put the market in such a position that, you know, once Lehman went down, everything had to be saved. And now we reached 2020 when the market had finally recovered. We had gotten off, you know, QE. I felt like we had gotten off that, you know, that, that thing in the, the IV in the hospital where the market was being pumped antibiotics and here comes the pandemic 
And now the market's expecting stimulus and expecting the Fed to save it because truthfully, this position is of no fault of their own. But now they're stuck in this thing where they feel like if they don't get more stimulus, if they don't get more PEE, then the entire market's going to crash. So instead of it being a free capitalist system, they're responding to tweets and not just Donald Trump's tweets, CEOs. We've seen Elon make his stock go up and down. I remember it was a couple of months ago he said Tesla was overvalued and I think it went down. It was either that same day or the next day, 20%, just because he said something instead of the market doing what it's supposed to do evaluating the fundamentals, looking at if that company has a competitive advantage. How's the cash flow? What's Mm. the technology? What products are they offering? Is there a barrier to entry? What does this company do? And is it essential to the market and its clientele? It's responding to, like Charles said, it's responding to news. I'm I'm not investing on news. If I'm buying an AI company or a biotech company, I'm thinking about what it's going to do five years from now, what it's going to do 10 years from now, how that's going to, you know, help my portfolio. I've been looking at some REITs that all they do is build senior living communities. And my thinking is every year, 5 million baby boomers retire and they're living the city and leaving urban America and going to the suburbs. I'm worried about that. If it gets hit, Right now, I don't care because 10 years from now, more baby boomers are going to be in there. More more people are going to be paying those luxury prices to live in that community where they get assisted. So I think the market has really reached a, a conscious hibernation. And by that, I mean, it's every day the market is opening. It's looking for something to trade on, some news to trade on, as opposed to trading on the fundamentals. We've gotten away from trading on the fundamentals. Now we're trading on rumors. The market's literally trading on gossip. There's no factual reaction. It's all reactionary to the political climate, uh, the international climate, which is not helping because not only is the U.S. market responding to U.S. news, global markets are responding to U.S. news. So they're not even trading on fundamentals. They're just trading on tensions and assumptions. I hate uh, trading on assumption or investing on assumptions because that's not a good fundamental. Like VCs do that. That's what the venture capital industry has. It's basically is they're assuming on the assumption that this idea or ideation is going to grow to a mainstream market. But the mainstream Wall Street, the Wall Street market, the three indexes should not trade like that. And I feel like we're in a very dangerous situation because today was a quick drop down. It, it, it dropped 300 points. I think it was almost down to like 400. Then it recovered and was down like 257. But one of these days, if it keeps chugging along like this, it's going to have one of those flash crashes where it's down one to 2,000 points really quick. And that could be bad for a lot of people. I, have no, I, have, I, I think that's a good, a good market summary, man. <laughs> let's get to these tweets first without before we get to this tweets we got to talk about the billionaire spotlight Raphael, who we got this week so this week i decided to choose an almost billionaire but so for this week for 
Black billionaire banter. The spotlight is on Sheila Johnson. Okay. Mm. You know, I was actually going to talk about her last week. That's all I was going <laughs> to pick. That's a, that's a surprise one for you guys out there. You might not have thought about her. Sheila Johnson, uh, a.k.a. the ex-wife of Robert Bob Johnson. The, both of them, actually, are considered co-founders of BET. So Sheila Johnson, for those of you who don't know, was a lawyer, I believe. A lawyer before she got married to Bob Johnson and they created uh, BET. I think most people think of her as just the wife, the ex-wife, and she got half or whatever she got in the divorce. You know, knocked him off, knocked him off billionaire status, but obviously she was just more than a pretty face. She was a lawyer and she had her own business acumen. Uh, she was ranked on, well, not ranked, but Forbes up to June of last year had her net worth at $820 million. That's about a year ago. I'm not sure what it is now, but I'm sure she, pretty, she still has a lot of money. And it's not all from a divorce settlement. She is a businesswoman in her own right. She's the only African-American woman to have ownership in three, count them three, professional sports franchises. She's part owner of the NHL's Washington Capitals, the WNBA's Washington Mystics, and the NBA's Washington Wizards. She's also created a company in 2005 called uh, Salamander Hospitality. Right. So she she invests in hotels and resorts. And she is a rich woman nice not just the ex-wife and that is very true she really did um from my understanding she kind of she was the business operations behind bob johnson's front facing he though he was the what do you like to call it um the face of the business on the outside she really ran the day-to-day operations on the back end allowing him to go out there and you know push and market the brand while she was out there, you know, running running the the day to day, the man in the ships, hiring the staff, making sure that things ran and they they were in compliance. She her biggest her business acumen is very well known. Yeah, interestingly enough, I'm reading here that um, in an interview she said that she's actually ashamed at what BET has turned into. Um, yes. In the beginning, yes. she was saying it was supposed <laughs> to be like the Ebony magazine of TV, and so. Um, they had like news. I remember like BET News. Um, they also had Team Summit. Everybody knows Team Summit, and then just transformed into just booty shaking hoes. Right. So right. it's such a shame because there's no reason. And I'm all for Bloomberg and CNBC and um, Fox Business. There's no reason that BET is not spotlighting or following the business market of the Black community. 24 hours a day like they should have if they're having reality shows it should be about black entrepreneurs black financing black uh black resources but they want to play baby boy 50 times a week (laughs) and i feel like that's why we can't just do stuff for money and if we are doing things for money you can still make money and make an impact and i feel like when people start chasing that buck they start 
kind of losing touch with their principles. And so they, mm-hmm. we see a lot of times people will do anything to pay their bills. But I think that we've seen how that plays out and we end up ruining the culture, creating this just raunchy culture that we exist in all because people, I guess I figure you have to kind of monetize at some point in time, but you can still make money and be principled. Ebony magazine is a great, they, they never really got to that point. Um, I don't think a lot are like, I mean, I guess they maybe you started trying to compete with like MTV and all that stuff and TV is a little bit different, but I think that that's, what's great about what we have now. Like our podcast isn't about nonsense and neither of our podcasts are about nonsense. And I think that we're able to um, still make money because I feel like a lot of my affiliate sales come out of the millionaire podcast um, and create great media. Our people actually want good shit. I think what happens is when you sell it to Viacom, Viacom destroys it because these white people don't give a fuck about you. In fact, they probably want to see the destruction of you. And that's another way that we sell out and we lose. It's like when you take that big check, sometimes perpetual ownership is more important because they probably be worth even more now. So it's like, you. that's why I always have that philosophy of never selling. You never sell because when you sell, you lose the integrity, the integrity of what you created. It could be a business. It could be some real estate. It could be a lot of different things. But if we're out here, quote, selling out, you can't even really blame it when white people come in and they turn it into music video after music video after music video. Is it selling? Is it selling out? I think, Charles, I, I believe you write on part was they, they shouldn't sell. But I think the, the gap is that there's no financing or no. And I keep tweeting this because it's like in my spirit, I can't get it out. There's no black conglomerate to sell black businesses to. Like mm. there's no black conglomerate out there that would buy a BET and make it a subsidiary. There's no black conglomerate that would have bought a Bevital and make it a consider a subsidiary that keeps it in the community mm-hmm. while allowing that black entrepreneur that took the risk to sell out, to get out of the business and monetize their ideation and their idea and the risk they took, but still keeping it in the community's control while maintaining the principle of elevating us. And I think, that's kind of the the void of the community black owned banks that they should be in a position where they're buying our businesses or at least funding the 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 structures or the the funds that buy our businesses to keep it within the community without compromising our ideals um i hear what you're saying to me I think that you can approach it two ways. I think one is you just don't ever sell your stuff. And the other is maybe you do have to create that kind of like financial exchange for black people and black businesses where you can take your business public and you can sell it to a public of black people. Mm. And so now you're selling it. And that's why a lot, they take a lot of companies public, public going public is kind of your exit strategy in a lot of ways. Mm. And so now Elon Musk builds this company and it's like, okay, so either we can sell to a quote conglomerate or we could take it public and I can cash out on my shares and maintain like 10% or whatever that looks like. Because if, if he has like 20% of the shares at a certain price and then he goes public and he sells half of those, what he paid for them and what they're worth now, that makes him rich. Mm-hmm. And so then you can still be rich. You can still have a stake in your company. You can still run the day-to-day or if you decide not to run the day-to-day, you can. But the problem is, I don't think we really see it, but 
we are ruining what we build when we give it away to other people. The reason why my tenants can still live in that neighborhood is because I want to see them live in that neighborhood. I'm not over here like, I don't, I, like, I don't care about you. I have no connection to you. You don't look anything like anybody that I know. So you can go. I'd rather have people who look like me living here. And I have that power and I might be losing a little bit of money in the process. And I feel like that's the thing is we have to understand that a lot of this wealth is made up. A lot of these big numbers are made up. And so there's certain hidden costs that come with ownership where you actually are a billionaire. You actually are living in a home that's worth a million dollars. They're just not going to tell you that. They're going to praise it at less. They're going to tell you it's worth less just to benefit off of your back. And so you have these people who lived in Dumbo and it's not, it's, it doesn't look, it's not a million dollar property when you live there, but you move out in the same land is now magically worth millions of dollars. No, that's mm-hmm. a, a farce that they're pulling over your head. They're telling you lies. I, I worked in a, uh, a family office. We do it all the time. You go to somebody, you tell them your property ain't worth shit. When you really know the value of it, they know the value of it. They just won't tell you it. They won't put it on paper. We got to know the value of what we have. We got to know the value of who we are. We got to know the value of what we create and what we build. And don't let them lie to us and tell them that it's not worth what we think it's worth. That's just my thought process. I just, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I also look at it as like, we just got to be the person to create it. And that's that's one thing. But but giving, giving your assets away to white people for white people money isn't the exit. You might think you're winning, but that's some fake money. You might think selling your stuff for a billion dollars is the win. No, they created that money. They printed that money so they could steal your stuff. It's happened mm-hmm. over and over again. People don't realize like you're, they, they're overpaying for your assets because it's fake money. The money is money's not real. What's real is the things that we can touch and we can feel. Mm-hmm. Even like families, like women selling out the family so that the, the man has to go somewhere so they can get a dollar so they can get Lucci and Gucci and Louis. That stuff's not real. What's real is family. What's real is keeping people together and building up kids. You have women who kick the man out the house. Now you got a child who's grown up not knowing who he is, not feeling loved, and they're fucked up. Like, that's the biggest L. That stuff is priceless. Raising kids that are on track is priceless. I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you have that statement because the last time I mentioned welfare, they they went off on me on Twitter. It's 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 tough to put into words <laughs> because a lot of it we don't we don't really see what's going on. I, I feel like we don't see the the game they're playing. I was listening to Umar Johnson. He was talking about how um they use like the term gifted to resegregate classes, and so you bring all these kids together and they're saying, "Oh well, he's gifted, so we're gonna put him over here in this class." They're not saying, oh, we're putting you over here because you're white. Like, no, like, oh, he's gifted. And it's like, oh, for some reason, the gifted class is 95% white. Like, okay, uh-huh. that worked out how you expected it to. And I've said it before. I was like, the wealth gap is the new segregation. They do this by design. They're playing chess and we're playing checkers. They're looking at here, over here, over here. And we're just over here just like trying to move one ahead. Let me just move one ahead. Let me just jump this. Like, no, it's a lot of moving pieces going on that we're not seeing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, anyone who's new to the podcast, this is Tweet Talk, the Backwell Podcast, Raphael and Charles. Normally, we break down tweets and we talk about building black wealth. So you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow myself, Raphael, at Work Money Life on Twitter. Follow my co-host, Charles, 
at Todd Billion. And follow our guest, Jamal Batos, at Leo Grand Prince. Now, let's get into these tweets. So, Charles, you had one where you said, to switch gears a little bit, investing is the only way to escape the job. Well, I think the reason why I said that is because having a lot of money is not enough. And, and, and so knowing that, I realized that it's not the money that allows me to leave the job, it's the income and the cash flow. And so if all I have is cash and I have not yet converted that cash into cash flow, I'm still actually beholden to the job because you don't want to take a million dollars and then start living out of it because you might be getting paid what you're getting paid, but you might be, you might be doing some crazy stuff when you really got all this time on your hands and now you want to, now everything is expensive. Now, now we, we only eat lobster when, when we hungry, we drink champagne when we thirsty. And, and so the wise person, what I've seen Chris do and what I've done is we make money and we invest it. We make money and we put it into dividend paying stocks. We make money and we put it into rental properties. We make money and we put it into vending machines. We make money and we put it into other business ventures. The only money that I spend is the money that's recurring money. The money that I know I get it now, I'll get it next month. Um, because you need that dependability. A lot of us stay on the job for what? Knowing you're going to get a check in two weeks. Right. It's not going to be a big check, but it's going to be a check. You know, at least you're not homeless. You're not hungry. And so... If you have a large amount of money and you start living out of that money, you will be broke eventually. It might not happen next week, but it might happen in five years. And if all you've been doing is living out of your money, now, not only did you lose all your money, you also lost all your potential capital. I'm treating this like a once in a lifetime experience to get as many assets as possible. So we're looking, I need, you need more assets than you think you need is what we've said. And so. I don't mean like starting from the bottom, like investing your way up. I think that you still need a substantial amount of principal, but notwithstanding, there was an article out there and it was saying that rental properties won't get you rich. And doing this for some time, I realized that that's true. And that's a big part of the reason why I, I'm constantly battling with, do I commit to doing more digital products? Or do I commit to buying more properties? Do I commit to buying more vending machines? What do I do? I don't know. I know I need to be bringing in investments because the rental properties have not made us rich and they're not going to make us rich. But what they do is they make you free. And so when I'm telling people to get rid of the job, I'm not telling you to get rich. I'm telling you to get free. After you get free, then you can get rich. And even if you are rich, you still got to get free. We ain't free yet. I still got to show up to this bitch. <laughs> I still got to show up to this bitch. And I make way more. I'm, I make way more per month than I make per year. And so for anybody listening, getting rich is not the goal. Getting income is the goal. And you can use your riches to get income, but you could also start building income even if you aren't rich. And so that's the dope part is you can start getting these rental properties without being rich, but just know that you retire yourself. We've talked about this. That should be like the, the hashtag of this, show, of this episode, of this show is you retire yourself. You buy your time back. Your time is priceless. They might be paying you 40 bucks an hour, but you are worth about $2,000 an hour. They're paying you $100,000 a year. You're worth a million dollars a year. You're worth $2 million a year. The problem is they steal it all and they steal your time. So if you can just get your time back, 
Now you're off to the races. Now you can create as many businesses as you want. Now you can do the stuff that might not mature for another three years. A lot of us have these great ideas. We just got the time to execute them. And it might be an idea or the, or the patience. Like most people, they have an idea and they have the experience, all that stuff, but they just don't have the ability to not work for three years. If you're free, you do. If you're free, you can start whatever business you want to. And the business makes you rich, period. Chris has said it himself. The business is going to make you rich. Investing is not going to make you rich. Investing preserves your capital. Investing helps you beat inflation. You're not going to get rich putting money in the stock market and sitting there making 12%. You make your money in business, then you grow it in the stock market. Business, always a business. No stock is paying you $50,000 in a day, especially if you don't got a, a million dollars already stashed. And so we're taught that, oh, wealthy people invest, so therefore I must invest to become wealthy. No, no. You're looking at the end result, not what they did to get wealthy. Businesses get you wealthy. If you do not have a business, you do not get wealthy. So therefore, and the great thing is a business is really just solving problems. It's not all this fancy, smanchy stuff they always talk about. You can make money selling hamburgers in the corner, selling flowers, selling shit, sell stuff. That's a business. Sell as much as possible. And digital products make it even better. And now that I got my systems down, um, that makes it better. And so I went on a long rant, but I just wanted to really hammer in this point that investing alone is not enough. Let's see, Jamal. Charles went on a rant and kind of stole my answer, but I'm going to piggyback on it. I'm going to piggyback on what he's saying and bring in this um, and bring it in this scenario. And he's right because think about Jay-Z. Jay-Z started off as a rapper selling, selling music, selling CDs. And he took the proceeds from that venture or that job in, in Charles's scenario and started investing in 4040 clubs. And then he started Rockaware. And then he, you know, started his own label. And I think Charles' point is investing is supposed to be a catalyst for you getting to the final destination. And I, and that was going to be my point that the business is what's going to make you rich. I know people see me tweet about stocks all the time and everything like that, but this is what I'm always talking about using financial vehicles. A business is a financial vehicle to make you that wealth. It is the bigger, it's, it's not even a cornerstone business is the, it's the centerpiece of it all. The business is what's going to be the main perpetual use of gaining wealth. You use things like the stock market, real estate. People use them as one thing, yes, capital preservation vehicles, but it's also ways people are using to, you know, lower their tax base, you know, stash some cash. Because when you start making a lot of money, you don't really have the assets to really park that money. Like you don't have the 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 institutions, you don't have the the structure, you don't have the framework. So you start buying assets to kind of preserve what you've gotten. And inflation is one thing that people are trying to beat. So they buy real estate, they buy stocks and everything like that. But to leave the job, the business is really the cornerstone of it all. 
investing just happens to be a byproduct of multiplying your money to make it more of a continuous cash flow thing that makes it all work. Um, if you look at Kanye's wealth, if you look at Jay-Z's wealth, they all got there by selling stuff. Mm-hmm. You sell records, you sell champagne, he um, sells sneakers. And so that's one point. They do go hand in hand. And so I'm definitely never going to say don't invest. But I've always said, and I'll continue to say this, but we all got to be starting a business because there's multiple quadrants. If you guys are familiar with the cash flow quadrant, and you have, and I was listening to Terry Egioma, and she made this comment, and she was saying that she always knew she wanted to be rich, but she knew that her job wouldn't get her rich. So while she was working her job, she always had a, had a side hustle. And so people would think side hustle is like side job. Like, no, like side hustle is a side business. And once you tap into that B quadrant, your income becomes unlimited. And so I always tell people that business isn't great because of, I said something like, I'm not aiming for a minimum wage. I'm aiming for unlimited wage. Business is an unlimited wage and wealth is unlimited. Jeff Bezos has an unlimited amount of money. It just keeps going up and up and up and up and it just keeps going up and up. And once you get there, then of course you can start investing. But I, I find that I think a lot of people are struggling and they're trying to get wealthy and they're trying to get there by like buying stocks and waiting, investing in their 401k and waiting doing rental properties and waiting. And they're even saying like, if you start looking at the math, it's like, yeah, we have rental properties, but even still, I'm just, every time I get, I'm like, okay, that just replaces the working income, but you still got to be building that business to get rich or just still focusing. Cause once you, at that point, then you're kind of in the business of rental property. And so then your goal is to scale and rent it up. So you can be in the same quadrant, different ways. You can be a business owner of investments. And so then you're just ramping up your investments. And that's what we're doing with vending machines because vending machines is kind of an investment, but now we're ramping it up so that we can have so much that now it exists as a business, which then makes the income unlimited. Yep. And uh, Jamal, you had a tweet saying acquire assets so that working through working so that working through your job, oh, working at your job is optional, not necessary because you can't afford to quit. And that's that came from I think it came from something Charles had triggered when it thought it's me necessarily. I work my job because I want to. Like I could quit and support myself just through my consulting things. But to me, the job is another stream of income. One that I love because I love my field. But two, I position myself in that. I don't have to go to work. I go to work because it's helping me acquire other things that I want. It helps me put more money in my Roth IRA, helps me put more money in my individual stock portfolios. It helps me, you know, acquire some capital for some other business ventures that I'm doing. And people get into this thing where they feel, where they're stuck with, like, you know, people literally wake up hating their job. It shouldn't be like that. You shouldn't be at a job where you're dreading going. You should be at a position where you either you're using the job that you hate to create at least enough income that you can quit to search either to find a business that you love and are passionate about 
or take the time to find a job that you love and that you want to get up and go to every day, in addition to the other things that you're doing. Like, I just think it's really, it's really sad that some people have to go to work because they got kids to feed. They got bills to go. They, you know, they got car notes, they got mortgages. And there's nothing more paralyzing than having to go to work because you have to. Like, like Charles tweets all the day, uh, all the time. Sometimes he's talking about these people don't realize I can quit the day, but I come to work because I want to, because I like this stream of income. That's the type of mentality people need to be in, but they're not willing to make the sacrifice. People, even people, I see people right now who are making six figure on social media. You know what they're born? What Charles says, they're buying Gucci, they're buying Louis, they're buying all these things. Instead of buying assets where, yeah, eventually they'll be able to still buy those things, but you still got to go to work because eventually the six-figure income, that can dry up. So you need something that cash flows constantly, that's constantly giving you a different stream of income that that if you got laid off tomorrow, you could adjust to that. So people should be using the job to supplement the acquiring of assets, not using the job as just they're trucking along. I'm, I'm doing this because society says I got to work 40 years to get a gold watch, to retire, to get Social Security. That's not going to be there because, ladies and gentlemen, the trust fund is broke. You ain't getting nothing. Your mother and them probably are barely going to get something. So I suggest you acquire some assets that will put you in a better position that you can live the way you want to live. And also, when you get assets that make your job optional, the, your mindsets work different. Like you're not at work stressed, thinking about, you know, if I'm going to get fired, if I do this, if I do this, uh, you know, assignment or this workload wrong, you know, will they terminate me? You, you, you become more creative. You become a better asset to not only yourself and your outside ventures, but also the company that you work for at the same time. I can't tell you how many times in the last year I've been at work and thought of ideas that both helped me and my company on my outside ventures and things that helped them. And I brought them up to my boss and she's like, yeah, that's a good idea. We should work that. And I take it home and I implement that into my own personal things that I'm doing. It just, it changes how you operate when the job isn't a necessity, but just a optional thing in your tool belt. Yeah. One of the things I was talking to my mom and I was saying like work shouldn't always be this thing that you do so that you don't end up on the streets. Like there's so much more value in a job. I mean, I I don't like jobs and I'm always like anti-job, but like Jamal was saying, I actually feel like I am a better employee despite my complaints and despite my frustration because I don't have to be there. And so my only goal is to do my job well. Um, there's no fear there. There's no pressure there because I know I was like, you can fire me tomorrow and I might actually make more money. <laughs> that was the tea. That was the tea. Um, so you think your sneakers look good, huh? Check this out. <laughs> Even the most exclusive sneakers once purchased look identical to everybody else's sneakers. Can I get a holla holla? So how do you take your boring regular sneakers and convert them to unique dynamic sneakers that will stand out? Yo, that answer is easy. 
You need to get, get laced with Get Laced Shoelaces. Yes, sir. Yeah, Get Laced is a lifestyle shoelace retailer dedicated to inspiring customers through a unique combination of products, creativity, and cultural understanding. We just want you to upgrade your sneakers. So get laced. Visit GetLacedLaces.com or check us out on Instagram at GetLaced.com. Underscore. Upgrade your sneakers with a black-owned business that provides international shipping, wholesale, custom, and fundraising options. Upgrade them sneakers, baby. Use a genius, man. Get yours today at GetLaceLaces.com. Premium sneakers need premium laces. But uh, despite that, um, one of the things that one of the things that's important for people listening to this is that. If you can't buy assets by yourself, buy them with a partner or partners. Because the reason why I can do what I'm doing now is because I started. I got experience. I got exposure. I got connections. I got over the fear of doing it because that's what keeps a lot of people from doing it. And so, like we were talking about in the beginning, everybody wants to rush it. I'm trying to get rich tomorrow. This is my rental property. But it's like, I would rather own 20% of a rental property three years, like to now. And then now I'm over here calling the dude, like, I want all three of them. And oh yeah, that's that's Oglesby Holdings over there. That's not even Ty Cap. That's not Investment Club. That's me. And you don't get there unless you, you get all the things that I mentioned. And so you can't rush the process. Stop it. Stop trying to rush past the work. Stop trying to rush, rush past the patience. Stop trying to rush past those three years that you're going to have to go through in order to really get to where you want to go to stop it. That's the reason why you aren't where you want to be is because you want to skip the stuff you can't. And the more you try to skip it, the more it's going to elude you, the more it's going to run away from you because you ain't earned it. You do not get anything for nothing in this world. You have to put in the time you have to put in the patience. That's what's going to get you there. Yeah. Man, when Jamal was talking about Social Security and said the trust fund is broke. And the way he was talking, I, I was catching fast, faster like Denzel as, as Malcolm X, man. You being hoodwinked. <laughs> you being bamboozled. The trust fund is broke. The trust yeah, fund, people strain. don't even realize it. Uh, so really quick before we get to the next tweet, I just want to give the, the folks a little tweet talk tidbit, little definition of private equity. According to Investopedia, private equity refers to capital investment made into companies that are not publicly traded. So what is private equity? Ownership or interest in an entity that is not publicly listed or traded. So Jamal, you said in a tweet, fewer than 1% of black people are in private equity. But when you look at our white counterparts, the world's richest people own multiple fund funds. Yeah, and, and that goes to in, in regards to like you know the VCs, you know, being in these you know private equity or venture firms, being able to one be black or be people of color, but that's in regards to like ideation and getting funding initially. I think Charles said it earlier about it in regards to real estate. Like, if you don't look like me, I'm not worried about you being in there. So it's very important that private equity starts mirroring the culture. And I don't mean, and I don't mean out here looking for a handout. I mean the culture itself needs to become its own private equity. 
Like we need to be investing and using the platforms in a way that benefits us. Like crowdfunding is being used by all of these our white counterparts to bring up the next, you know, AIs becoming a thing, biotechs becoming a thing, and all the private equity money is going to all of these white firms where it's like none of the black companies are getting the money because one, we're not in those spheres. We don't have access to that industry. So we have to stop waiting for private equity to open the door and open the door ourselves. And again, I keep hammering this point home, but it needs to be hammered that the black banks need to kind of get in that sphere. The, the, the one thing about black, black ideas and black entrepreneurs, I know it's cheaper for us in our startups than it is white counterparts. And I say that because we're so used to doing less with more that a $100,000 check in a Black startup company goes a lot further than a million-dollar check in a white startup. And statistics will show this. They'll, the burn rate in white firms is always higher than the burn rate in Black startups because the Black startups are always afraid that they're not going to get more funding, that they penny pinch. We can turn a, a penny into a dime really quick. And I think that needs to be an avenue that we get in further, whether it be do angel investing or starting these own private equity firms and just pouring into these black startups that private equity needs to be something that we build ourselves and stop waiting for the system to invite us to the table. And when you say real quick, when you say burn rate, you're, you're, you're referring to how fast how, how the fast they spend the cash, whether it be R&D, whether it be prototypes, whether it be staffing, whether it be, let's be serious, they out there buying $5,000 dinners, whatever, whatever they are using the money for to expand the productivity of the company, the burn rate is always much faster in those white counterpart companies than it is in the black startups. Anything you want to add there, Charles? Um. I'm not a fan of venture capital. I'm not a fan of reliance on venture capital. I'm not a fan of allowing somebody to determine whether I win or not, especially not Kelly. And so I just, <laughs> I feel like when we, when we start talking about that, it makes us look like big little bees, man. It's like a different form of being a little bee. Um, Julian Gordon and then raise multiple millions of dollars. Investor raise multiple millions of dollars. Tulsa Real Estate Fund raise multiple millions of dollars. We're able to do these things, and we already have done these things. The thing is, is if your idea is not a good idea, nobody's going to fund it. And so you should be able to pitch your idea to your people, just like you can pitch it to Tom over there in uh, Silicon Valley. I... I am a strong believer of doing everything for yourself. Everything. Anything that they can do, we can do. And I would rather us put our energy into creatively solving our own problems than creatively finding a way to compel them to solve our problems. Because when they solve our problems, they get richer. When they fund your venture capital fund, they get richer. And so if we're over here trying to... to to defeat the wealth gap, how are we going to defeat the wealth gap if we're making them richer? <laughs> you should want to keep your opportunities for yourself. It's for us. This is right. a billion dollar, trillion dollar business. This is for us over here. 
not this is a trillion dollar opportunity. Please take 80 percent of it because they, uh-huh. they, they're going to take the majority of your company. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just whenever I see that, it just kind of makes my skin crawl because I, I think we're better than than that, than any form of begging, any form of compelling anybody to do anything for us. I'm just anti all that stuff. Yeah, you will get some chicken, but they will get the big piece of chicken. Mm-hmm. That one. So, Charles, you said dress like the boss, even if you aren't the boss yet. Um, I'm not really sure what inspired this tweet. I really have no idea what inspired this tweet. So I can't even really expand on it. Honestly, I can't. It's not that deep. I just be out here trying to wear suits every single day and make sure I got fly, fly stuff. But um, yeah, it's not that deep. <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't too much to that. Put on a suit, get it tapered up. <laughs> if you're listening, be sure to get your views. Duffel bag on sale now. Get a great price. Great bag. I use it every week for sure. Go to boxing class. We have a link in the in the show notes. But Charles, you also said y'all sleeping on ops and then blaming others for your lot in life. Man, I'm just like drawing a blank. I was just tweeting a lot today. I have no idea where that came from. Um, <laughs> What's the tweet man. saying? Again? It said y'all sleeping on ops and then blaming others for your lot in life. I really am drawing a blank. Um, but one thing, one thing that I have noticed is every problem that we complain about is an opportunity. Everything, everything they tweet about. Oh, our schools aren't good enough. Oh, our communities aren't safe enough. Oh, they're shooting us in the streets. Oh, all these things. That's a business. And we already talked to you about how business creates wealth. So you're looking wealth straight in the face and you don't even recognize it because it's not attached to a paycheck. They convinced you that you are no more good than a paycheck. Speaking of businesses, I've been seeing some very, very successful black entrepreneurs on the internet. This dude bought a Rolls Royce Cullinan. And so I looked at his page and he has like five stores, like a store in Atlanta, a store in Philly, a store in all these different areas. And then I kept scrolling his story and he was like, oh yeah, I just bought a a million and a half dollar property. We're about to destroy it and rebuild it from the ground up. And of course, you got Nia, the lock god. Of course, you got Twiley, who's doing crazy stuff. You got the Forex people buying Dior. And it's just crazy, like, what the wealth we've been able to attain over the last four years. I don't know if there's a correlation, but I think there is one. However, we're all solving problems. Like, the reason why it's high capital wins is because we solve problems. And so, therefore, if you are looking at a problem, you're looking at wealth. Like Grant Cardone says, some businesses will create a problem just so they can solve it. They'll create coronavirus just so they can solve the coronavirus pandemic. They're going to make it seem like it's bigger than it so they can solve it and look like a champion. So start solving problems, man. It's not easy. It's hard. It's frustrating. It's not fun. You'd be up late at night. But if you was broke, you'd be up late at night too. You'd just be hungry. You'd be up like, I wish I had some food. I wish it wasn't so cold in this house. So if you're going to be up, you might as well be up solving some problems instead of just existing. Uh, I'm going to look at your tweet in two folds. I'm a, I think Raphael said y'all sleeping on ops 
yep. and then blaming everyone for the lot in your life. So I'm going to take the ops as opportunities and opposition. So for the opportunities, people do sleep on opportunity. I think I see it all the time. I see it sometimes even when I, when I tweet something, I tweeted um, in Baltimore earlier, like maybe a couple of weeks ago, I was telling people because Express is like 40, 60, at that day, it was like 69 cents a share. And I was like, if it goes out of business, I'm going to need one of y'all to create a fashion line that's kind of like Express for Men because that's why I get, you know, some of my casual business where I need that. And someone tweeted to me, why don't you create it? Which was a good idea, but I was like, that's not my lane. But since you responded, why don't you create it? Like, mm-hmm. why don't you get in there? You were throwing shade at me. I'm already out here running businesses. I'm already out here in the trenches. You create that opportunity and get into that field and capitalize on what's on what's the niche is being mixed. And in regards to the opposition, I think Kobe said it best is like, you got to get up earlier than your opposition. It was this thing I saw on Instagram where he was like, the person, let's say you get up at nine and you work out, take a break. You do it again at 12, work out, get some lunch. And then you work out again at six. And then you lay down for the night. Then he was like, if you got up at four, you could work out five times. And that's two extra reps you got into the game that your opposition didn't get. A lot of you are out here taking vacations while your oppositions are making businesses. You're out here buying luxury brands. And I understand everyone wants to work hard and everyone wants to spend their money, but you're taking your eye off the ball when we just got into the game. We just we just got into the game. We're not even really stable, if we're being honest. Like they're, they, We're just starting to make some noise and it's starting to notice. We ain't even on stable ground. And y'all taking your eye off the ball. The opposition is on our ass and y'all are off the mark. So I think that people need to get more entrenched. Like this game is getting more complex. They're going to change the rules. They're going to change the policies because once black people start getting some money, oh, we can't have that. Oh, those niggers making money. Oh, the policy is going to change. The tax code is going to change. The the zoning rights, everything's going to change. So don't be sleeping on the opposition. We need to be in these meetings. We need to be at these, at the at these policies. We need to be everywhere there needs to be. Where the opposition is, I'm looking for. Um, getting up early is a super hack if you can manage. But the key to getting up early is go to sleep early. It ain't nothing on TV late at night, and you can only scroll your phone so much watching TikTok. Don't go to TikTok late at night because you will fall. You will just be in TikTok. It's so interesting. <laughs> Um, and the Show other level. the other thing that I was going to say is that, um, dang, you said something that I was going to touch on it. I was trying to remember my two points, but it's okay. I'll get, I'll, I'll remember. I always remember. I'll get it back later. <laughs> you get it back later. Yeah. Now, hearing Jamal talk about Express being um, 60 something cents. I just looked it up. It's 66 cents right now. Of course. For those who don't know, if you if you're if your stock price is below a, a dollar for too long, they will delist you. Yeah. So Express is in danger of being delisted, meaning they're gonna kick them off the NYSE stock exchange. And that reminds Express is such a unique company. 
It is. I used to buy their dress shirts. They had some nice dress shirts, but they would always shrink on me. And so I had to stop buying their dress shirts. Um, they have nice sweaters. They're kind of pricey, though. Yeah, they're kind of like um, a fast fast fashion brand. But, yeah. um, it reminds me of a little story from my own personal experience. Really, is kind of a sore spot for me. But lately, everybody knows about Apple. Is it, am, I, am I right? Apple with the stock split? Yeah, Apple or right. Tesla. But yeah, everybody's talking about Apple with the stock split. Oh, the share was 400 bucks a share, roughly. And they were doing a four for one, four for one stock split, meaning they'll break it up into four. You get, you get them for 100 bucks a share, roughly. And everybody was excited about that. Now, what people may not have ever heard of is a reverse stock split and i've experienced that myself and that was no fun Mm. because the company i worked for when they went public they gifted a bunch of employees stock and i personally got gifted 300 shares now the thing is it had to it was a two-year vesting period meaning for two years i kind of kind of owned the stock but couldn't do anything with it. I can't sell it. I can't trade it. I can't do anything with it. It's not really mine until two years ago. By the time two years passed, the stock was in the tank. It was below a dollar. It was in danger of being delisted, like we were talking about. So what did the company decide to do? A reverse stock split. A 15 to, four, to one stock split. They so, wiped you out? So it went from 300 shares to overnight, I had 20 shares. And then that was shortly before it, it actually vested. And then when I got the 20 shares, it automatically sold like 10 of them to cover the tax liability. So I basically went from 300 shares to 10 shares. And at that time, I, I will say that the you really didn't lose money per se. I guess you lost money because you lost the 10 shares. That's a lot of shares. But like with the stock split, yeah, it's 300 shares that goes down to 15 shares, but it's 300 shares, let's say hypothetically at a dollar to 15 shares at $20 or whatever that number looks like. And so that's why stock splits are so kind of misleading because People who think they're getting a discount. And so let's say, for example, Tesla, which was trading at like $2,000, which is very high for Tesla. They do a five to one stock split. And now they're trading at $400. And people are like, it's $400. Look, no, it's really still a $2,000 stock. (laughs) And it's probably not worth $2,000. And so then it proceeded to fall. And it it fell from like, well, it fell from like $500 to $400. And then it kind of ran up a tad bit but I told people that was going to happen. And so what you did is what I did. You didn't go all in when it split. You buy some and then you wait and then you see what it's going to do. Cause we, we can't predict the future. we like to believe that we can predict the future, but you can't predict the future. And so then it fell. And so you got to figure out, do I really like Tesla? Like I say, I do, or do I just like, like the party that's everybody else is having. I personally like Tesla. And so I bought more and then it ran back up and now I'm in the green of my Tesla. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah. It sounds like you just, it sounds like it just wasn't a good stock altogether, despite the stock split. 
And I think that's right. a good teacher moment about what Charles is saying. It's like with the spot, the stock splits, whether it's a split or reverse split, it's basically a financial engineering move. Like the fundamental hasn't changed. Like if if Express decided to reverse split their stock just so they don't get delisted, the stock's still probably bad fundamentals at this point because it's at mm-hmm. 69%. Something in their their cash flow operations and their uh, in their you know product base is not working. So it doesn't make it more valuable. It's just a financial maneuver to make sure it doesn't get delisted. And mm-hmm. on the other end, Tesla and them going from 2000 to 400 doesn't make it as Charles said, it doesn't make it more valuable. I think it's overvalued anyway, even at $400. So it just means that you're getting more or less shares for the same value of the same money. They they basically playing an illusion in your hand. They're showing you one card and moving it to the other hand and telling you, oh, you got more cards. Like, no, not really. <laughs> right. Still the same percentage, but or less of a percentage. Charles, you said you get more value when you pay. Mm. You're, just picking all the, you're just picking all the whack ones, man. <laughs> no, but but seriously, though, I was looking at, I was actually, I was doing a lot of like reflecting and I was looking at how the Todd Capital Options community has damn near eight paid moderators and they get paid pretty damn well. And all they're doing is teaching people how to be successful investors. And so in certain respects, not charging the people in the Thai Capital Investment Club actually did them a disservice because I wasn't able to actually pay Jamal. Uh, He was volunteering his services. I wasn't able to pay Candice. She was just volunteering her services. But since I can pay Hunter, since I can pay Khalil, since I can pay Shauna, since I can pay all these people, I can pay Sheridan, they get more value. And so they might only be paying 20 bucks, but they probably get about $100 worth of value out of that thing. It's a conference call damn near every day. It's a voice thread going on every single day. There's trade ideas going through there every single day. It's $100, $200 worth of value, and I still keep the price at $20. And so that's how you do business. You over-deliver on the value, and you undersell on the price. I learned that from Chris. That's why the options course did so much. People were taking the options course, making their money back the very next trade. They're like, bro, I make my money back the, the very next trade. Why wouldn't I buy this from this guy? And I just kept it at that price. I was like, it's a great value exchange. I see people making 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, still keeping the course at $97. Maybe drop it down at a sale day to $50. Because I've always had this theory. I was like, there's so many people in the world millions upon millions. If I could just get millions of people to give me $1, then I would be a millionaire. And so in a lot of ways, people are giving me money because they're getting more value out of the content. And so if there's a positive exchange, they have no reason not to give me what they're giving me. And with digital products, they just, they do themselves. And so I sell that to say that there's two points I'm making. The first is that you're going to get more when you when you actually invest in what you're a part of. And then also when you do get somebody who invests in you over deliver. And I always try to do that. I always try to overgive because it's like a return investment. So 
let's say, for example, Jamal gives me some beard cream. And then I, in turn, uh, do a podcast with him or bring him into different opportunities. And then he, in turn, does whatever he does. He might refer people my way. He might just speak highly of me. He might not be slandering on me, hating on me like everybody else on the other side of Twitter. Like, it's an exchange. Group economics is an exchange. And we only grow the more we exchange. And that's why the exchange is so valuable. That's why I give to Raphael. Raphael gives to me. Raphael grows. I grow. That's what it's supposed to, that's a group economic, it's an amplifier. Group economics is an amplifier. It only amplifies you. And so if you don't rob me, I'm going to make sure you eat. If you give me just something, 20 bucks, don't rob me. Don't be in my DMs trying to get free financial advice. I'm going to make sure you eat. And so that's what I meant by that is you get more when you don't be a fucking freeloader. Everybody wants to be a freeloader. They don't want to have, they want to spend their money on what they want. And they want to go to the government with what they need. No, like maybe if you actually participated and helped the government do stuff, they'd help you back. But you just want to be a financial freeloader your whole life. And that's the gist of that tweet. You just touched on my soul because I cannot relate anymore if I wanted to. And to talk about financial freeloaders, I have a lot of people. And Charles will know, like I was, like you said, I was doing stuff for free. Even before we got into the investment club, I was giving free investing advice while in college years before I had the degree. Like I was helping people learn financial literacy. So I get a lot of sometimes where people will, they'll see me tweet something randomly. They'll send me my tweet in my DM and want further expansion. Book a consult. Like if my Uh, advice is worth to you free and I'm already giving you free daily advice, don't try to waste my time. Like, Book a console. I'm not, and I'm not robbing you. I'm not charging you what I really could charge you. That's not thousands of dollars. I'm charging you for the time that it would take me to walk you through the process. And like Charles said, I over-deliver. People book a console for me. And after that, they get to call me back three times without having to pay anything. And that's not even, it's not like I'm giving them a deal. It's not like I'm splitting the fee through the one thing. They pay for one thing, but because I love, what I do so much and I want to educate my clientele and I want them to feel comfortable. And I know that investing is not an easy thing that you pick up overnight, that you're going to have trial and error, that once, even after I walk you through the process of opening up a brokerage fund, explaining Roth IRAs, explaining 401ks, you're going to take some actions, not be sure about them and come back and like, Jamal, did this work? Is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this right? So I want to put you in a position where that fee that you paid initially was a drop in the bucket of what it's actually worth. So don't mm-hmm. try to devalue me. And I really hate that because people, people, all of a sudden your, your opinion is valuable when it's free, but it's invaluable when it costs them. Also, I was good enough when you could pour from me and take away. Well, now that you have to kind of give and take, it's not valuable anymore. And that's why I can relate to Charles's tweet, because people need to realize that you're paying not only just for you to get information, you're paying for me to break my back for you a little bit, to put in that effort. It's like it's like the investment club. Like when I took when Charles was getting those monthly contributions for people. I took that shit seriously. I sat up in my chair. I did the research. Every every time the monthly calls came, I made sure I had my shit in line because these people are paying whatever they're paying to get the value of my opinion. And it has to be top notch. So stop 
devaluing people's products, stop devaluing their time, stop trying to get stuff from the from free and the and here's the here's as quietly as it's kept by just operating in good faith with a lot of people, you'll get a lot of free shit. Like Charles sends me free shit all the time. Just what we we've been doing business so long that he just wants me to try certain stuff. But that's because I poured into him and he poured into me. I bought some of his courses just because like the man's putting stuff out. So I'll buy it. Like mm-hmm. and I trust his you know, I want to, if he knows something and I find it valuable, even if it's just for educational purposes, I'm not going to tell him to send it to me for free. Like you've done the work, I'm going to pay for it. And that's just how it works. It's a cause and effect. So stop, stop trying to get everything free because y'all getting free shit is kind of why you're in the predicament that you are. You've been taking free. How many of y'all have gotten your taxes mm. done for somebody? A taking that free is an L. Free <laughs> Yo, that is free L. is an L. You got some hidden L. Like, like I know so many girls or, or, or people on social media say, "Oh, my homegirl did my hair for free, but I don't really like it." Look, that's what happens. You ain't paying no product, so or no money, so she kind of half assed your hair. So pay the little bit of money <laughs> or the fee that is necessary. To, for people, and here's the heck that people don't really get. When people, when you pay people, they feel obligated to you. Not even, not like they're a slave, but they feel obligated to do good work because they either one want you to become a return client or they want you to refer them to other people. So you're really not getting robbed. Like sometimes you're getting the better end of the deal. Like, even with Charles's options course, he should have been charging y'all two fifty. You got it for ninety nine. Some days fifty if you caught a sale. Like stop lowballing people's talents, lowballing their struggle, lowballing their experience. If you want good, high quality, high quality products, pay for them. Tell you one thing, y'all ain't gonna buy no three dollars, three hundred dollar easies and think you're gonna get free stock advice from me. No sir, you gonna get this mm-hmm. generic stuff on the timeline. You jump in my DM. I'm going to send you a booking link. Hit the link. <laughs> Hit the link. So, Jamal, you had a tweet saying, folks waited years for a recession and then got one and spent all their time avoiding the actual discounts. Y'all don't know how this works. Us, people, people, I can't tell you. And I know me and Charles have seen it in the in the OG investment club. People would be like, oh man, I wish this was 09 again. I wish I could have got Citigroup at a dollar. I wish I could have got Apple at 40 bucks. And I wish I could have got Tesla at eight dollars. But you sat on the sidelines, especially on social media. Really, either again, going, you haven't bought any courses or you you haven't paid for people to teach you how to get into the game, but you're expecting results. People, this is a once gener- this is a once in a generation type of wealth switch. Like, when's the next time you expect Apple to be on discount? When's the next time you expect McDonald's or something to be on discount? And there have been opportunities, there were opportunities back in March. The opportunity is kind of dried up. We had some in September. We had some in June. But people, I find that people who have that hindsight or Monday morning quarterback 
oh, if I had known, you know, I would have got in there. They're really people who just talk. Charles tweets about it all the time. People want it. People want validation and glorification for just saying what they're going to do instead of taking and act, executing, implementing exactly what they're talking about. Don't tell me you waited for this opportunity. You should have got a thousand dollars and bought some stocks and then told me, oh, I've been waiting for this opportunity. This is what I bought. I've been waiting for this opportunity. This is the company I started. I've been waiting for this opportunity. This is the product that I created. People like to say things that make them feel good about their station in life, but they don't really, they don't really take the action. They're not really making the sacrifices. They're not really changing the narrative. So I just, I want people to really like use, there's still time to get in actually. There's still time to get in. This election is going to give you a lot of volatility. Traditionally, November and December are not good stock market months. They usually go down about two to two and a half percent. So you will have a chance to get in. But are you really going to get in? Are you going to see other people make money, complain that, you know, nobody believed in you or nobody taught you anything when you got a whole community on various social medias waiting to either give you free game on a timeline on a daily basis. And if you want a little bit more personalized, specified information, selling you digital courses or consultations for not too bad of a price. Um, I used to watch a lot of Erica Williams stuff, and she was always like, a recession is coming, a recession is coming. She used to always predict a recession. And then you would listen to other people and they'd be like, a recession is coming, a recession is coming. And the tone was always like, get ready, put your cash on the sidelines, get ready for these buying opportunities. And it's just so funny how reality looks different when you actually meet it face to face. And so you'll, we'll make comments like, man, they're out here buying toilet paper when we want you to buy stocks and people will get pissed off. Like, I can't <laughs> believe you said that. It's coronavirus. People are dying. Right. And I was like, I can't believe y'all, y'all said y'all was waiting on a recession. So you, you can't, you can't wait for an opportunity. And then an opportunity presents itself. And you're like, people are dying. We shouldn't do anything. Opportunities are ugly, especially when it's an investment. An opportunity looks like Detroit real estate. An opportunity looks like a stock that's on the brink of bankruptcy but only by what the news is saying. It's not actually true. An opportunity looks like your community that they're saying is crime ridden. These are all opportunities. People are making a ton of money in Chicago real estate. And we sat on our heels because all we did was listen to the news. Opportunities are ugly. Opportunities don't look like opportunities. And so now is the time And it has been the time I've made a ton of money just by buying when they said not to buy. I bought SPG, I bought MGM, I bought AMC, I bought all these really ugly companies because I realized this is an opportunity. This is huge. Whenever you get something like this, like go all in on the bottom. Why the bottom? And this is what I was going to say when Jamal was talking about that is because when you buy the bottom, the worst is always priced in. And so therefore, when you have the news and all these people talking, you're still already at the bottom. Unless it's a new disease that decides to pop up, it's not too much further that stock can go. There is a buyer at every for there's a buyer for a stock at the right price. So a stock can never really go to zero. And so 
this is why I don't trade the highs. I'm not trading Netflix, Tesla, all that stuff that can get killed. I'm not trying to McDonald's. Anything that's at the top of his chart, I don't want that shit. That's not an opportunity to me. I'm looking for the stuff that's being beat down by the press. And so you have to recondition your mind if you're going to be a solid investor. You cannot be a consumer and an investor at the same time. And that is true in a lot of different ways. So a consumer, we're buying a house to live in. It's not an investment. It's a retail purchase. It's a great house. It has nice cabinets, you know, nice countertops. That's not an investment. In 15, 20 years, it might be an investment, but now it's not an investment. That's market price. We ain't walking into no equity. But if you're an investor, you want to find equity on the buy. You make your money on the buy. I'm not making my money on the hope for the future. And that's why I dismiss a lot of wholesalers because they're selling me the hope. They're like, yeah, I mean, you're going to be able to rent this for like 800 bucks for the next 12 months. Or you're going to be able to blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, bro, that's not what I want. I want, the, I want my money now. You get your money now. A wholesaler is not like, I'm going to just wait it out with you, dude. We'll just split it. Like, no, <laughs> they, they want a check today. And so the check today, you got to invest like a wholesaler. Are you looking for, like, nobody ever seems to grasp that concept. You buy stocks just like you buy discounted real estate. Ugly shit. You don't buy stocks. You're not buying somebody's exit strategy. Just like what that article was saying is that these turnkey people are selling you a dream. They're selling you wealth through rental properties and they already took all the wealth. They bought the property at a discount. They rehabbed it. They're selling it to you at market or maybe at a slight discount. They're selling you a dream. The dream is the future. I want the money I can get right now. And Charles, you said, this one is interesting. You said, don't aim for a deal that's in your budget. Oh, man. Um. I was listening to, I was listening to Greg. What you never know. This is why you got to always be immersed in content. So a lot of times I go to sleep, just listening to YouTube. And, um, I was listening to Grant Cardone and Grant Cardone. He's always just like the go big, go big guy. And he was saying, when you're looking at an investment, you don't want to look at what you can afford. You don't want to look at what makes sense to you in your present moment. You can't change your life if you're making deals that make sense to your present self. You have to grow and expand much larger than where you are currently. And the crazy thing is, is you can manage it. You might think that if you have a bunch of money in the bank, you're just going to go buy a car. You're probably not. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to buy like a Rolls Royce Lambo. You might look at them a lot, but you're likely not going to. And so on the inverse of that statement is find a deal that makes sense and then find the money. And so now I'm looking at larger deals. I don't want to look at small stuff anymore. I'm rehabbing our inventory and I might be buying stuff that makes sense because it's contiguous to our current property. But I, I, I got a deal today and he was like, oh man, this is a house, it's $20,000. And I was like, well, that's not a flip. I, I don't want to just, I don't want to put 20,000 to buy the house, 30,000 to rehab the house, and then I'm going to get like a, a $1,600 check that's going to be cut into by maintenance and utilities and insurance and all that other stuff. Like, no, I want to put up 50 grand and make a hundred grand. That's what I'm looking for now. And so that said, we're looking at hotels. We're looking at apartment complexes, knowing, looking at stuff in downtown LA, knowing we're going to have to explode our entire pro- thought process. We're going to have to create that fund. We're going to have to start talking to VCs or not VCs per se. We have to talk into private money. 
we have to start talking to other people, athletes, things like that to bring them in. And then that's when you start filling that gap. But it's different because it's based by an actual property, not an idea. And so that was basically what that tweet was to kind of like explode your thinking. Grant Cardone has a way of pushing you into your excellence as opposed to just helping you make sense of where you are now. He has this famous quote where he's like, his mom always says like, I love you just the way that you are. It's like, I don't love me the way I am. I can improve. I can grow. I can be better. And so that was the tweet. Like the small stuff, I know I can do it. Let's what's next. I'm like, I need more. <laughs> I need more. I look at deals. And I'm like, $5,000 a month ain't going to do nothing for me. I, I need, I need more. I need 50 grand a month. I need a hundred grand a month. Like that's, what's going to get me excited. I don't need two, $3,000. I don't need $1,600 a month. If I'm going to put my energy into an opportunity, it needs to be massive. You say, Jamal. I, I agree with Charles and I'm thinking about it on the thing. And everyone knows that banking is my thing. And like the deals have to be bigger. And as I'm trying to write, I, I don't even think I told you guys, I'm trying to write, raise a hundred million dollar fund to buy one of the black banks. And it's funny that Charles is even talking about that because that's a massive ass deal. I haven't even raised a fund before ever, but this is where I'm going to start raising a hundred million dollars to on take on this massive industry. That see, the thing is, the thing is, is you have a target and the target determines the raise. So you're not just saying, hey, I need the million dollars and we'll see. You're like, no, this is what we're doing and this is how we're going to improve it. And that improves your odds of getting the money. Yeah. And, and that's really what it, what it is. And it kind of goes back to what Charles is saying. I never would have attempted that deal if I hadn't have been a part of other smaller things that had built my knowledge, my experience, my, my thought process that had brought me to the point, hey, I ain't done it, but I can do this shit. Let me get out here and, you know, pound the pavement. Let me get out here and work the numbers and let me work the system and everything like that. And I think people get, people get so caught up in the minute or the micro things. Like they get scared in that. I had a um, young lady who I made a tweet earlier. She jumped in my DMs and this was more in Charles' room. She was like, what do you think? She was like, should I wait to go after the apartment complex or should I raise the capital and then go after? I was like, no, do that shit anyway. Like <laughs> go after the apartment complex, get the idea, do the business structure and the money will come to you. Like don't wait for it. Don't wait for it to look neat and tidy and clean. I'm like, and she was like, I was like, what are you waiting for? She's like, I'm waiting for the market to settle in a year. Sweetheart, that market ain't going to be no better in a year. You might as well just work it now and get the work done and get the, the bottom out of it. Like people need to stop using size as an excuse. Like the bigger it is, the more challenging it is, the better you become. Like there's an old saying that, that I love that says, don't wish it was easier, wish you were better. Don't wish for less problems, wish for more skill. Like, and I think I heard that in, it might've been the secret. It might've been one of those things that I was listening to. And uh, that's Rome. really the, Huh? I was saying it sounds like Jim Rohn. Yeah, I, that's exactly who it was. Jim Rohn. Like, wish you were better. Like, the deal doesn't have to be something that you've done or something you're even qualified for. You ain't qualified for it? Fuck that shit. Do it anyway. Like, 
attempt the massive things that other people aren't attempting. You know why? Because the air up there is going to be a lot more plentiful. There's not going to be a lot of competition. Like nobody else. There are very few people in the room with me trying to raise a hundred million dollar fund for black banks to consolidate them. Nobody paying attention to it. They just waiting for the banks to have gone from 40 to now 20 and eventually 10. And then they're going to be non-existent. No, I'm going to work the room now because no one else is paying attention. And that's where the real achievement is where you do an attempt when nobody else is willing to do and what no one else thinks you can do. That's a good idea to take the black banks and put them under one branch. Bro, it's it's something that I can't get away from, Charles. It's like, you motherfuckers are inefficient. You're unmodernized. Your technology is trash. Your CEOs is washed up. They ain't had an original idea in 30 years. Fine. You don't want to be moved or you want to be stubborn. And I'm going at it and the angle is like either you get bought voluntarily or I'm well equipped and well and fully capable and fully prepared to make it a hostile takeover. Like we could do this one of two ways. Like mm. you either get dragged into the modernization and be be beneficial to the culture or you come willingly and we can work this out. Yeah. Um, I was, I was listening to a podcast. And he was talking about how, like, a lot of people, when they set their goals, their goals look like perfection. And I always talk about, like, perfection doesn't exist. And so your goal is aiming at something that doesn't exist. And you don't realize, like, that's why you lose. And that's why I am inclined towards action, because I know that you can't really ever reach perfection, but you can perfect what you're doing. You can improve what you're doing. You can refine what you're doing. But if your only goal is perfection, you'll never start because it doesn't exist. It's like trying to shoot at a target that doesn't exist. Shoot at a hoop that's not there. You'll never make that shot. And so you probably never pull the trigger on taking that shot. So you have to change your target from perfection to progress, to um, movement, momentum, something that's actually pushing you towards that goal. What did you always used to say? You was like, start now, get fancy later? Yeah. Start to get fancy later. And Charles, you said the more people you add, the more assets you can add. Man, that's such a uh, I was I was thinking about how like the Thai Capital Options community, when it just had me, had a thousand members. And now that I have all these admins, I have damn near five thousand members. And then I was looking at our vending machines, and it was just so cool because usually I'm working, I can't even get to the vending machines until Saturday. And so that means Let's say that machine is empty. It's going to sit empty from now until Saturday. I'm, I'm losing sales. I'm not making any money. And so I brought on my, my new employee who actually listens to this podcast. who probably even found us through this podcast. So shout out to him. And uh, he called you Raphael Sadiq. He was like, yeah, I was listening to that episode of Raphael Sadiq. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, nah, that's Raphael husband. But anyway, um, so now I'm like, okay. If I have him doing my vending machine route, my only energy is focused on buying and negotiating more vending machine routes. That's it. The reason why all our units are occupied is because I have Sheridan. (laughs) Sheridan has filled all those units. Sheridan takes all those phone calls. Sheridan does all that stuff. But what people don't realize is I got my hands in a bunch of different stuff. So in order for me to have my hands in a bunch of different stuff, I have to have somebody who just specializes in doing that. Man, I had a thought. So the goal is to scale that. The goal is to buy more 
units. I really had a profound thought. I was about to say it and I forgot what it was. Oh, this is what it is. So what Gumroad taught me is business should be easy. It should not be a grind. It should not be a hustle. If I'm grinding and hustling, there's a flaw in my business system. So with all my views packages, I was like, I'm not carrying packages to and from my car on a scooter. Like I'm not doing that anymore. Business should be easy. What's the easiest way to get this done? Okay, stamps.com. Okay, I can have the boxes shipped to my office. Okay, I have everything shipped to me. All I do is print these things out and I take them over there. And now what used to take me going to the post office and waiting in line and putting stuff in a duffel bag. No, now I just print it off my computer. I just printed 15 labels. Business should be easy. If it's not easy, there's a flaw in your system. Now, granted, having resources allows me to make it easy. So your first business might be a grind. But after that, it should flow. Even with the vending machines, I'm like, okay, I'm going to Zell you the money to go buy this stuff. It's instantaneous with Zell. You go buy everything we need. Pretty soon, he'll know how to do the vending machines better than I do. And that's another benefit of putting people in place is they know it better than you do. They know people better than you do. And then also, you can start to kind of see your system. I had a tweet and I was like, you don't realize how small your business is until you get out of the weeds. I was stressed out with what I have now. I was like, this is just nuts. I got to take my whole Saturday away from my son and I got to be driving up here, loading my brand new car with all this shit. I don't want to do that. I don't want to put a whole bunch of sodas in the back of my car. I don't want to put bins of cookies on my seats. I just don't. And so I had to think and thinking is the wealth game. It's exponential. I do a lot of shit and it's all from this. It's all my brain. I take in information, I execute, and I manifest a reality. I was like, I forgot we had rental properties. I'm finishing up a rehab, starting a rehab, got four rentals running, got 15 vending machine locations, got a barbershop, got two podcasts, got options community. I got got a, a, a digital course bank. Do you realize how much stuff that is? That's a lot. And it only exists because I think and I create and I got a mastermind group that I forgot about. I just be thinking of stuff and putting it out there. And when you exist like that, there's no limit on how much money you can make. Jamal can do his, his bank acquisition takeover and also be focused on doing some, something else too, because it's all ideas. You put the people and the pieces in place and you can do as much as you want. Wealth is abundant. And so I hope you guys got some value out of that segment. But yes, the more people that I bring in, the more assets I can acquire, the more homes and deals I can do, the more vending machines. Cause now I'm like, okay, we got 15 locations. I want a hundred locations. And if I got to add another person, because a part of it was even figuring out the system of bringing on a person. I, I, I struggled with that for a long time. I was like, how do I bring on somebody and have them handle them the cash and trust that they bring me back? You know what I realized? He just ain't gonna handle the cash. He'll, his only job is to exchange the stuff. And so once a month, I'll do my rounds and I'll just drive out there. I'll check on the locations and I'll pick up the cash and I'll just do it once a month. That's it. And so now I took what I was doing every Saturday. So maybe I do one Saturday a month and then I might get somebody that I trust. And that's all they do is get the money and make the deposit. There's an old, uh, well, not an old quote, but there's a quote that says, even if a chef has a business mind, 
He should be focused on what's behind the kitchen doors and a business partner should be focused on what's in front of the kitchen doors. And I say all that to say is, yes, you should have more people and acquire more assets. I always, when people always come to me for consulting for business structure, like when they're trying to get a business off the ground and it's only just them, we always get to a point where I ask them, have you thought about having a business partner? for either one of two reasons. For them lacking a certain skill set is usually either marketing, operational, that whatever, some type of structure or skill set they don't have. Or as Charles said, to share the stress. People don't want to bring on business partners because I think you said it earlier, people would rather have 100% control instead of 20%. Like, The 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 object is to have you guys are constantly talking about multiple streams of income, but you're so tight fisted about being in control of everything that you're not letting the income streams work for you. You need people who come in and take over some of the administrative stuff that take over some of the operational stuff. And in Charles' case, does the route, drops off the chips, the drinks and whatever, somebody else eventually to pick up the cash because that allows you to do more. That allows you to be spread in other avenues and other ventures. Like imagine what Charles can do if I only got to pick up the cash once a month. That Saturday can be spent putting out more podcasts for y'all, looking out more, uh, looking up more real estate deals, putting out more um gum rub like digital products for the, for his, his clients like having other people in your deals is essential group economics is a business life and wealth hack get more people get more assets get more time right and and that's the thing is i get my time back and so you got to get your time back even if your business is still in your time and so we always classify certain activities, like every activity isn't a boss activity. Some activities are worker activities being done by a boss. And so <laughs> that doesn't make it a boss activity because I'm doing it. No, <laughs> that's an inefficient use of my time. And so, um, yeah, I need to, like, it should be spent creating. It should be spent doing those things as opposed to sweating and lifting stuff up. And if the roles were reversed and I was trying to get in the industry, I would be in his shoes, hustling, learning a route, getting access to somebody who he can bounce gyms off of and ask questions and maybe partner with financially, whatever that looks like. Last part of that, I think people need to take their ego out of it. Like a business partner doesn't mean that you're less capable or that you're, you're, you know, that you can't do something on your own. Even an entrepreneur needs people or employees to bring their idea to fruition. Just because you, when you hand, when you hire your first employee to help sell your product, doesn't make you less than. It means you you've grown to the point where you need that assistance. You need that sounding board. And quiet as it's kept. You don't have the you don't have exclusive rights on all best activities. So you need that circle of confidence around you to kind of elevate your thinking. And business partners kind of challenge the way you operate your business. They can make you more efficient. So you want that thought process and that aura around you. And in the same token, sometimes business owner can, can business business partners can hold you back 
And so one of the things that I will say is I don't like people going back and forth for me about ideas. I just need you to just do what I said, get done. And then we can debrief afterwards. And so if we are going to do it this way, we'll do it this way. And if it works, it works. If it didn't, we'll, we'll address that. But I don't want to get our conversation in the way of the action because the action is going to tell you what's right, not the conversation. And so many people want to talk and go back and forth. I think this, and I think that, and I think this, and we ain't doing nothing. And that's why I don't do blacker pockets anymore because it was too much back and forth. I was like, bro, drop a podcast, do a course. Let's do something. Let's promote Mm -hmm. some black success. But all this going back and forth and talking, it ain't making us no money and it's not making no progress. Let the market determine what's hot, not your opinions about what's possible. So we're going to get into this last tweet. Start wrapping up. Jamal, you said level one of wealth. Use money to make you money. Level two of wealth. Use others' money to make you money. Yeah, and I think Charles will agree on this. And in the beginning, whether it's a startup, whether you're investing, um, um, the money's going to be your own capitalization. It's going to be the money you either made from your job, the money you save, the money you made from a side hustle. That's going to be what's going to make you money. Once you reach a proficient level of that, of using your money to multiply your money, preserve your assets, preserve your capital appreciation, you move into a, a, a sphere where you use other people's money. Whereas that whether it's a real estate deal or raising a fund, you put less of your personal wealth at risk to make not only you money, but now other people money. And the, on the first level, you're, you're only making, you're only risking your money and making yourself money. On the second level, you've taken your money out of the equation and using other people's money, but you still get the added benefit of making you money while making other people money as well. So people got, I think people get stuck in this narration, especially entrepreneurs. Every People have started three and four businesses and every time they got to use their money. It's like, okay, you use the money on the first, you know, the one or two first ventures. But at this point, you should be proficient enough that you should be seeking other people's money to actually attempt this third or fourth venture because the experience that you use and make uh, using your own money should make you so proficient that you can tell people how you're going to manage their money, how you're not going to risk or lose their money, and how you're going to multiply their money. So, People get stuck in this whole, it always has to be my money, my money, my money. It has to be my money to buy my first real estate, uh, real estate rental property. It has to be my money to buy my first vending machine route. It has to be my money to start my first prototype. When for some of you, it may be that case, but in other cases, even if you used your money on failed ventures before, you should be able to articulate a way that other people let you use their money to bring your ideation to market and see if that works out. I listened to a bigger pockets podcast over the week and he was talking about how when you raise money, you have to stop thinking of it as you taking from somebody and instead you giving them an opportunity to make money. And so you have to approach it as like, man, 
I shouldn't be so selfish or so self-serving that I wouldn't allow them to participate in something that's going to make them money without them doing anything. Um, the other is that what was interesting is, and I never thought about this this way, but we've talked about this before about how after you start a business and you do it successfully, you realize what it takes. And so people don't, I've told people this. So I was like, making a million dollars wasn't about the million dollars. It was about learning what it takes to make a million dollars. And so if you watch what I've done since then, I mentally approach every business like that. I start getting myself out of the way. I start putting systems in place. I start putting checks and balances in place. And so while people might hear that and look over it, that's a big shift from me realizing that I make less money being the person filling this stuff up as opposed to supervising the person putting this stuff up. I got there because I realized how much I could do through automation. My only job with Gumroad is scale, 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 scale. That's the reason why I made so much money. I don't got to fill any orders. I don't got to do anything. And so I approach every single business like that. I need to decrease the amount of work that it takes so I can focus on scale. I need to decrease the amount of driving I have to do so I can focus on scale. I need to decrease the amount of shipping and going to post office so I can focus on scale. And so my knowledge is valuable to somebody with capital, somebody with capital who wants to get into a business and the ROI on like seed money, angel money, that VC money is massive. It's high risk, but it's high, high, high reward. So if you look at like Gary V, he made millions off of a thousand dollar and like five figure investment, maybe like 50 grand. He put 50 grand in Twitter, became multimillionaire. And so once you have this skill set and once you'll see like people are serial entrepreneurs. And so a lot of people who do the Twitters or the Facebook, this ain't their first time at the rodeo. (laughs) So they know stuff and your, your knowledge is valuable. You're giving an investor the opportunity to piggyback off of your valuable knowledge and maybe turn that $1,000 investment into millions. Take it, my Raphael. Yes. So be sure to get the new options course, the new ad- advanced options course from Todd Capital. You can find it at toddcapital.co or in the show notes. You can also get one of the other new courses like Reap Money or even crisis money. And also check out the advertisers, investorsateam.com, home of the official merch of generational wealth, such as the popular shirt, You Can't Fire Me, The Boss. Also check out Get Lace Laces, upgrade your kicks with premium laces, because premium kicks need premium laces. Upgrade your whole outfit at getlacelaces.com. And I would like to leave you guys with two tweets from Charles and Jamal, and I will paraphrase them. Jamal was saying, whether it's baby steps or big steps, we're just trying to move forward because like Charles was saying, it's a recession, but we still got money to get. So <laughs> for episode 69 of Tweet Talk, the Blackwell Podcast, it's your host, Raphael Husbands and Charles Oglesby. The third, J.D. Mr. Didn't pay to get featured in Forbes. And please say the J.D. Say the J.D. Put some respect on his name. Yeah. I ain't gonna say it no more. (laughs) 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 Our special guest, Jamal Patel, 
Yeah. Yes, sir. What's good, Tweet Talk Podcast listener? This is Donald, the voice, the official editor and producer of the Tweet Talk Podcast. And so I want to come to you to tell you that for the entire month of October, I'm doing a 50% off promo. That's right. I'm slashing the price. It's 50% off. Donald, why would you do that? Well, it's because, doggone it, it's quarter four. And I know some of y'all are ready to get ahead of this 2021 momentum. And so I'm here to help you. So head on over to DonaldTheVoice.com. Go over to the contact tab. Or you can hit me up on Instagram at Donald the Voice. Mention this promo and let's begin talking about your podcast editing, video editing, or voiceover editing needs. That's all I got to say. 50% off. Let's get it. Let's go. Have a good rest of the day. Keep building, baby. Keep building. That's what it is. 